Every episode of Gooned will deal with very heavy and potentially triggering subject matter, including physical, sexual, and emotional abuse, murder, suicide, kidnapping, transphobia, homophobia, self-harm, and other kinds of violence. There will be specific content warnings at the beginning of each episode, but if you are a survivor yourself, or if these topics have the potential to trigger you, please proceed with caution. Hello, this is Nancy. Hi, Nancy. Hi, nice to talk with you. Appreciate you. I appreciate you scheduling the call. I just wanted to discuss some options. We're, you know, very early in this process and we wanted to consult a professional. That's me, a 23-year-old journalist, doing my best to sound like a 57-year-old homemaker named Nancy. I'm on the phone with a woman, we'll call her Diane, who I hired to help me find treatment options for my fake daughter, Ella. I told Diane that Ella had been struggling with depression and self-isolation since she started her freshman year of high school, and that me and my husband, Mike, also fake, were running out of options. So tell me a little bit about what is going on. I know you explained that she's struggling in school and at home and socially. Can you expose on that a little bit? When I initially found Diane, I filled out a brief form outlining what had been going on with Ella. I explained that my daughter had been struggling to make friends at a new school and had been withdrawing into her room and spending most of the day on her phone. For for a very long time, she was a outgoing, very sociable kid and did very well in school. And it seems that since her first year in high school has started, her grades have been slipping. She will either stay out with friends or she will just kind of be in her room. She seems Nancy and Mike had found out that Ella drank a beer at a pep rally and even found a nicotine vape stashed in her room. Ella didn't want to talk to her parents about what she was going through, but she'd become uncharacteristically moody. Stuff I thought was pretty typical for a 16-year-old. But within five minutes of talking with Diane, she said... You know, you basically have two choices, a wilderness program or more of a residential program that gives them the ability to stabilize, get settled, have professional counselors. Diane is what's known as an educational consultant, or an EDCON. Broadly speaking, an educational consultant is an advisor for parents and students, much like a guidance or academic counselor. They provide resources and expertise on educational planning, usually for high schoolers searching for and applying to college. But educational consultants are also one of the first steps in a pipeline into the troubled teen industry, a network of profit-incentivized congregate care facilities that use behavior modification techniques to address what some perceive to be problem behavior. These facilities, whether they are wilderness programs, therapeutic boarding schools, or residential treatment centers, are loosely regulated, incredibly opaque, and often a source of lasting trauma for the children and teens who end up there. The troubled teen industry has been in the business of abuse, neglect, negligence, and malpractice for decades, despite both publicized and buried cases of death, injury, and suicide. So there's magnetic locked doors. I saw a lot of restraints. We had a quiet room that was a padded room with a bed in the middle with straps that they would strap the kids down to when they were misbehaving. 
Since the 1980s, the TTI has been a booming business, seeing hundreds of thousands of kids locked away in its programs at any given time. They do bullshit in there with sleep deprivation, water deprivation, and food deprivation. You're scared all the damn time. Every kid in there is going to play a game to, to make it through. You're a kid. You're not going in there on your own volition. Throughout these episodes, we will explore the past, present, and future of an industry that has built its empire around institutionalized for-profit child abuse and continues to threaten the well-being and lives of young people in crisis. I had to literally catch this girl from like falling and splitting her head open on the rock because she passed out multiple times and they refused to believe her until it was almost too fucking late. From the cultic origins of the TTI to its current status as a multi-billion dollar enterprise, Gund will explore the ins and outs of the industry through testimony from survivors, families, staff, and activists. You, like, weren't allowed to talk to anyone. You weren't allowed to have free time. You couldn't even glance at the TV. You couldn't eat dessert. You couldn't call your family. We will hear about what it's like inside these programs, learn how kids end up there, and who is part of the pipeline. We'll look at the history of the industry and its cultic origins, hear from former staff members, shine a light on shady money trails, and reveal the process of enrolling and transporting a child. And I was like, I can't do that. Like, I need to get out. I can't be here. But it's either going to be a a 12-week wilderness program or the short-term residential programs. I love wilderness. I think it's very powerful and transformational. As Diane talked up the benefits of wilderness therapy to Nancy, I tried my best to stifle my horror. By the time I had contacted Diane, I had spent months and months researching troubled teen industry programs like the one she was recommending, talking to survivors, former staff members, and families who had been affected. After discovering the truth of the troubled teen industry from the perspective of those who had gone through it, I was struggling to feign ignorance and struggling even harder to understand how Diane slept at night. Let's back up for a minute. Ella's profile, that of a typical teenager whose struggles are best addressed by outpatient therapy, communication, and a healthy support system, fits the profile of many kids who end up in the TTI. But kids are sent away for a number of reasons and through a number of channels. Teens who find themselves in wilderness programs, lockdown facilities, residential treatment programs, or therapeutic boarding schools are most often sent there by their parents through private referrals. These parents are usually at their wits' end, whether because their child has been showing signs of mental illness, experimenting with drugs or alcohol, harming themselves, or simply pushing boundaries in a developmentally expected way. Faced with what they see as their troubled teen, parents and caregivers don't know what resources are available to help or they have exhausted all the options they know of. It's at this crucial juncture of desperation and vulnerability that parents stumble upon educational consultants, sometimes through a referral from their child's therapist or school, sometimes from a friend, and sometimes from a Google search. I think first names are fine. Okay. If people find me or whatever, good. They can find me and they can learn more about our story and our journey. Sharon, the mother of three teenagers in suburban Texas, sent her 12-year-old son to a wilderness therapy program in North Carolina in 2022. We'll be calling her son Logan, which is not his real name. Sharon is also a pseudonym. 
I'll start off with, uh, just tell me a little bit about your son. How old is he? What kind of things does he like? What does he like to do in school? All that kind of stuff. Sure. So he, gosh, things that he has enjoyed throughout his life. Legos, huge Lego fan. He likes video games. He likes riding his bike, swimming off and on. He's enjoyed. Those those probably the big things that he really likes doing. Logan had been struggling at home and at school, experiencing meltdowns and struggling to leave the house. Sharon and her husband sent him to specialist after specialist, but nothing seemed to help. In the springtime of 21, kind of started noticing some issues again. He was just becoming a lot more work and school avoidance, having a lot of breakdowns at home where he would just be bawling in tears. And I know kids, when they're getting close to puberty, hormones and emotions can go flying. But it just didn't seem right and age appropriate. It seemed like so much younger than what was he then, 10 10 or 11 at the time. They took Logan to several psychiatrists who put him on various medications, some of which seemed to worsen his symptoms. And then, like the fictional Ella, Logan started at a new school. Then in the fall of 2021, he started junior high. So sixth grade environment was totally different. You're suddenly changing classes, bells are ringing, hallways are full of people. He started having a lot of really huge ticks in his body, big arm movements, head ticking, a lot of big things that caused him to lose a lot of ability to do the things that he enjoyed. He wouldn't ride his bike anymore that fall because he didn't feel safe riding his bike. He stopped swimming just kind of began to avoid stuff. He started just refusing playing the piano because he'd sit down and it's like he couldn't control his arms. He would sit there and they'd be shaking. As Logan's symptoms worsened and the list of tests lengthened, Sharon got more worried, more scared. All this time, we're trying to work with a psychiatrist and change medication levels. We were continuing to try to look for other reasons. Like, why did our child change? He's always been, like, a little hothead and stubborn and willful, we, we kind of dealt with that. Why now is it so different and such a change? After extensive testing, several medications, and input from a small army of specialists, Logan was diagnosed with autism and ADHD. We continued conversations with the psychiatrist, trying to figure it out from that end. I took him to a, a number of doctors that do, like, brain scans that pretty much confirmed that, yes, he has, like, ADHD, (laughs) and he is ASD level one. He's high-functioning. He maintains and makes great eye contact, but he ticks so many boxes of having little bits of that whole umbrella of autism. Though enlightening, the diagnoses didn't change anything for Logan. At 11 years old, he still struggled to engage in school, and the medications prescribed to him seemed to only worsen his outbursts. Sharon worried not just about his present, but also his future. We had tried getting him back to school, and his fear was that he would have outbursts at school. When you have outbursts at school, you get into a lot of trouble. So we started doing homeschooling, and I mean, took him through a little bit of curriculum. But we've got a kid who likes to refuse to do work and doesn't really want to participate in it. So it was kind of minimal. And what do we do as parents? Like, again, we have a child who will not cooperate with us. We're not parents that we're going to go and like try to beat our child into submission. 
It's like, no, I want him to be able to, to collaborate and find a solution to get back into a learning environment. And he just wouldn't really engage. And so we started looking at some other options. Just like Nancy, Sharon ended up connecting with an educational consultant who was recommended to her by a friend. Our educational placement counselor actually got in contact with probably early 2022. And he ended up recommending, have you guys ever considered or thought about a wilderness therapy? We're like, no, what is that? Like Diane, Logan's educational consultant immediately suggested congregate care, a type of highly structured residential treatment for children that places them in a group setting away from home. More specifically, she recommended wilderness therapy. In a remote area of North Carolina, the consultant said, Logan would spend most days camping and hiking, preparing his own food and shelter, and attending therapy in individual and group settings. That fall, Sharon sent Logan to the program, 1,200 miles away from his home and family. I was not fully transparent with him. I did not tell him how long he was going to be there. Because honestly, even as parents, we weren't certain how long that process would be. So I had basically just told him, hey, they've got a wilderness camp. Here are some of the things they do there. He knew that he was going to the camp. He just didn't really know or understand how long that might be. Sharon herself was not given a clear idea of Logan's length of stay, and neither was my middle-aged alter ego, Nancy. In fact, many parents are not told how long their child will spend in TTI programs. Sometimes consultants and programs will flat-out lie about lengths of stay, quoting averages that end up being months or even years shorter than the lengths of time their child spends in a primary placement. And rarely are consultants clear with parents that most kids will be sent to a secondary placement after wilderness therapy. Yeah, I would recommend this before the school year begins. It's 30 to 90 days, with the 45 days being the average length of stay. Okay. Diane told me that Ella would require anywhere from one to three months of treatment in the wilderness. It's just like a summer camp, she explained. Sharon was told, and still believes, the same. Before he went, our mindset as parents were, okay, he's going to be there. It looks like the average day is maybe two or three months. So probably around this time, late winter, early spring, he might be coming home. And that was kind of our mindset and thought before going into it. But Logan was in the wilderness for much longer than that. He was there. He can tell you the exact number of days. <laughs> I can't remember exactly how many, but it is right around, I think, I think it was 111. Many survivors I spoke with also told me the exact number of days that they spent in their programs, anywhere from 90 to upwards of 1,000. They remember counting down those days, wondering if an end would ever come. These programs where children spend months to years of their adolescence are not evidence-based. There are, in fact, zero reputable studies demonstrating the effectiveness of long-term congregate care for minors. The tactics and treatment models in the TTI are not based on a studied therapeutic model, nor are they individualized based on the needs and concerns of each child. Sometimes, parents are cajoled into sending their kid away for little reason at all. Maybe they drank a beer underage or started wearing skirts that seemed a little too short. Maybe they listened to too much punk music. Maybe they're gay. 
Regardless of why they're there, these kids are undergoing essentially the same treatment. The path through the program for, say, a teen with an eating disorder and a teen addicted to narcotics is the same. The treatment methods used by troubled teen industry facilities find their origins in a handful of mid-century cults, namely Synanon, a drug rehabilitation program from the 1960s that rapidly devolved into one of the most violent and controlling religious cults in the United States. Methods like scream therapy and attack therapy, which originated with Synanon, were replicated in early TTI programs in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, graduates and staff of which went on to found a number of facilities themselves. If you were to draw a chart to trace the growth of the troubled teen industry from Synanon to early programs like Straight Incorporated, Provo Canyon School, and SeDo, it would look like a tree. To this day, modern TTI facilities use cult tactics like information, thought, and behavior control, as well as limiting or prohibiting contact with friends, family, and the outside world. Your first contact with your child is through letter writing. It's not a phone call because, I mean, most kids, when they're hitting a first phone call, it's like, mom, dad, please come get me now. You know, whatever, bring a boat or something, pick me up. Especially during the first few months of treatment, teens in TTI programs are prohibited from contacting the outside world, even their parents and family. Phone calls are not allowed, and letters are censored and monitored by staff. Any cries for help, reports of abuse, or requests to be taken home that do make it to their parents are couched in terms of manipulation. That is, the child is manipulating their parents in order to be taken home. Eventually, students can earn phone calls home. These calls are often heavily monitored, with another student or a staff member hovering nearby. They are also very brief, usually starting at 10 minutes, with the possibility of earning 15 to 20-minute calls with good behavior. Eventually, that kind of graduated as he started going through the program to the point of a phone call. Uh, The first phone call with him was only half awful. (laughs) It was was very much him saying, this place sucks. I want to go home. Like, why haven't you come and, you know, gotten me and taken me home yet? Beginning as early as the referral process, parents are told that their child's cries for help, reports of poor conditions, or expressions of neglect are nothing more than manipulative tactics, laziness, a lack of willingness to participate. Parents are cautioned against, quote, falling for their kids, please. And just trying to explain to him, it's like, we will come and get you when you've you've made it through that program. We understand that you're uncomfortable where you are and that you're doing hard things where you are. And we're still going to let you stay there. And that was really hard and uncomfortable to do with him because, I mean, you see your kid there and you know him and you want to you want to help them. Like the cults upon which they are based, TTI programs convince families that contacting or communicating with their child would be detrimental to their treatment. They call the time before the child enters the program their old life and claim that only by maximizing the student's discomfort and minimizing their connections to who they used to be will the child change their ways. Families are told that contact with their child is a crutch that prevents growth. But if you go in and you constantly just kind of save your child and try to do a protective bubble, they never learn and they never grow to their potential either. Uinta Academy, a TTI program in Utah, 
even warns parents against setting specific dates or deadlines for how long their child will remain at the academy. In a parent handbook from around 2014, Uinta warns, At no time should you give your child dates or a timeline as to when they will be returning home. Through our experience, we have observed that every time this is done, it backfires. Your child's progress slows down or stops because their focus is not on today at the academy, but is on later when I am home. In a section outlining the goals for a family therapy session between a student and their parents, it reads, I will not complain about the program or ask to be taken home. I understand that if I do not follow the rules, my parents will bring me back. Uinta outlines the emotional arc of a typical student in their program in a way that sounds disturbingly like the stages of grief. The following is a direct quote from their parent handbook, Circa 2014, edited only by removing some sentences for length. Bargaining is another phase of manipulation that your child may try. They will attempt to make deals or promises so that you will take them home. They will say things like, if I work hard, will you take me home by blank? They may try to make you feel guilty by telling scary stories. Examples might be, they are starving me. This place is full of lesbians. The staff do whatever they want to me. Or, I need to be home with my family. The ultimate attempt at creating guilt is typified by, if you really loved me, you take me home. It's not that these kids are deciding to work through a treatment plan. They're not becoming more honest, nor were they dishonest or manipulative in the first place. Then, when bargaining fails, the depression phase usually begins. This phase could be represented as a withdrawal from the group, the staff, or the family. They are not finally working through their traumas, or learning new coping skills, or coming out of their shells, or learning to regulate their emotions. Your child may try to gain attention by not eating, or overeating, becoming lazy, and carving on her skin. If the parents and academy team remain strong in their resolve that the child must earn her way through the program by making changes, they will finally reach the acceptance phase. As students quote-unquote progress through TTI programs, they are, quite frankly, giving up. The acceptance phase occurs when your child realizes that no manipulation is going to provide her with a way out. Then, and only then, will they be able to start making progress through the program. They are realizing that their parents are being told to hear their cries for help as manipulation. We can help them reach the acceptance phase more quickly if we do not let their manipulation take our focus away from why she was placed in the academy. They are realizing that there is only one way out, and that is to do your best to figure out what the program wants from you and perform that. If your child has complaints that bother you, do not let her know it bothers you, as this would reinforce to them that your support of the program could possibly be swayed. After a few initial phone calls and letters in which Logan begged to be taken home, he finally stopped asking. After that first call, though, the other calls with him were were better. It was more of 
finding out what he'd been doing while at camp and what things he was thinking about. His main thing is that he says that the food sucked (laughs) and he said hiking's hard. And really, that's the main stuff that he's conveyed to us. Beyond monitored phone calls and censored letters, visiting your child is heavily discouraged, not to mention a taxing and expensive endeavor when they're hours away from home. The program that Sharon chose for Logan did not volunteer the option to visit him, and Sharon didn't ask. They had already convinced her that doing so would only stunt his progress. We did not visit at all. Could we have gone? I Maybe we could have, but it wouldn't have made sense to. Because had we gone in person, it would have been just much more of like, okay, no, 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 just take me home. Don't leave me here. As Logan's complaints about the program became fewer and farther between, Sharon felt that he was improving. Eventually, he stopped talking about the cold, the hiking, the food. His letters became more impersonal and his statements more matter-of-fact. He had really only been starting to make good progress closer to the end. Like, he really ramped up, like, very logarithmic scale, like, no change, no change, no change. And then finally, he kind of hooked and and understood more about, like, why he was doing stuff and how to think about things. After 111 days in the wilderness, Logan finally came home. He seemed less angry, more subdued. His outbursts had become less frequent and less violent. He no longer protested at leaving the house or at much of anything. He was more manageable now. But program staff were clear with Sharon, as they are with all of their parents, that removing Logan from their care meant an almost certain backslide. Wilderness is helpful, they reminded Sharon, but as soon as your child is removed from that environment and thrown back into the real world, relapse and the return of old behaviors are inevitable. Unless they are sent to a secondary placement. And so we kind of all felt that if we brought him home, he might be stuck again. And we might have a really hard time (laughs) getting him to another program that could help continue that growth. After wilderness, programs often refer students to a therapeutic boarding school. So we actually ended up transitioning him directly and just had a couple of days between the program that he was at and the therapeutic boarding school that he went to. Just days after he returned home, Logan was sent to a secondary placement just as far from home as the wilderness program had been. One of the things that the therapeutic boarding school told us when they had heard that we have a a kid that's kind of coming out of a wilderness therapy program and to their school, they said that can be a really good thing because they tend to find that kids that are going to the therapeutic boarding school will progress faster with those therapies when they're already coming out of wilderness. This story is all too common. Primed to normalize sending their children away, parents are convinced that removing their child from congregate care will see them return right back to the troubled teen they were before they left. And while stays at wilderness programs can last several months to a year, teens will often remain in their secondary placement until they turn 18, no matter how many years that may be. So most of the kids who come through their program will be there anywhere from 12 months to two years, depending on how they're doing getting back into school. Logan remains in that school today.
In the coming episodes, we will hear from survivors of troubled teen industry facilities from as far back as the 1980s up to the present day. They come from all backgrounds, genders, ages, and walks of life, but their collective testimony speaks to a common experience of lasting suffering. Logan is but one of hundreds of thousands of children and teenagers in congregate care who are often left with more trauma than they had when they were sent away, trauma that can take decades to shake. Hundreds of people have died in TTI facilities or after leaving as a consequence of the abuse they suffered or the trauma they incurred. Many experience homelessness, addiction, and heightened susceptibility to abuse. Many struggle to establish and maintain healthy relationships with others or find a community that can help them heal. Many lapse back into the addictions and mental illnesses they suffered before they were sent away or use those things to cope with what they experienced in treatment. Very frequently, the relationships between survivors and their families are broken beyond repair. Hearing survivors' stories is both harrowing and uplifting. The survivors we will hear from in Gund have gone on to live fulfilling lives and find the resources and support they need to work through their experiences in the troubled teen industry. But it's important to remember that not every child makes it out, and not every child who makes it out is able to overcome their trauma. The very fact that these survivors are able to speak out means that they are the lucky ones. The voices of Gund speak for those who cannot speak for themselves. Thank you for listening to this episode of Gund. To see the parent handbooks and internal documents referenced in this episode, along with exclusive content and early access to episodes, head to patreon.com slash goondpodcast. Remember to rate, review, and follow Gund wherever you listen to podcasts, and check out goondpodcast.com for more information. Next week on Gund. And the first thought is, oh my gosh, mom, dad, save me, right? And you think you're being kidnapped without your parents' knowledge. And I remember looking to the door and seeing my parents standing there watching. And that's when I knew that something was wrong. I thought we, I was being robbed or abducted or something. Then on the way out, that's when I saw my parents and they didn't have much to say. So I knew at least they were in on it. So we are looking to send Ella to a program in Utah. And I just wanted to go yes. over what that process would look like, kind of what to expect for, for a service like this. Well, I don't have an estimated cost for you, but what I do, I take the number of hours it'll take for our team to get out to you guys to pick her up and for the team to return back to where we are based. I could put all that on an estimate for you. No, we do use a two-agent gender-specific team. Gund is researched, reported, and edited by me, Emma Lehman. Original music for the show was created by Olivia Springberg. Original artwork was created by Sam Doe. Sarah Lukowski and Avery Erskine copy-edited and consulted on the show. Thank you to all of the amazing survivors, activists, researchers, former staff, families, experts, and everyone else who lent their stories to this podcast, both anonymous and otherwise.